welcome to Daily Recording Power Parsha. This is uh, August, Friday the 13th. Look at that. Friday, August 13th, 2021. The fifth day I of... started listening to your podcast. It's pretty oh, shocking. Nice. Which one? The Guru. The one about the the sweat lodge and all that. Yeah, thing. you found it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh. yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, we spoke we spoke about that last time. Pretty pretty dark. Yeah. Anyway, so there's uh, that 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 pertains to the molech to the passing of the kids through the fire that we spoke about. By the way, I looked into it again after that class myself. Not the podcast, but the molech. And they used to throw the kids into the fire. So it wasn't just walking through. They used to throw them into the fire. It was child sacrifice, etc. Okay, so let's jump into our reading. I'm going to share my screen. Let's pull this up. We are going to cover the fifth, sixth, and seventh readings. Give me a second. All right, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse number 14. For these nations which you are to possess... Hearken to diviners of auspicious times and soothsayers. But as for you, the Lord your God has not given you things like these. If you recall, at the end of last week's session, we spoke about not following these pagan idolatrous practices, including the idea of divining things and fortune-telling and bone-consulting and summoning of the dead and consulting with all these you know, future-telling things. The idea was to be wholehearted with Hashem and... In a similar way, the Torah says here, the Torah continues to say, these are all the practices of the nations that you're about to kick out, essentially. As for you, that's not what you're supposed to do. Here we go, verse 15. So how do we communicate with God if we don't use these forms of, uh, of dark magic? So the Torah says, Moses says, a prophet from among you, from your brothers like me, the Lord your God, will set up for you, you shall hearken to him. In other words, you're going to have a Navi, you're going to have a prophet. We spoke about this um, last time also, a few days ago, that there was a leader, there was a prophet for centuries, and so there were always those who could communicate kind of the spiritual messages, and that is what should be followed. Verse 16, according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb, that's, refer that's a reference to Sinai. On the day of the assembly, give me a second. Let's let Ray in, okay. Um, according to uh, verse 16, according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not continue to hear the voice of the Lord my God and let me no longer see this great fire so that I will not die. Basically, when the Jews heard the Ten Commandments straight from Hashem, straight from God, they said, this is too big, this is too frightening, this is too like larger than life, we need a prophet to communicate with us. And, uh, and, and God said, okay, so then it's going to go through Moses, and that's the way the process worked. So Moses now tells the people shortly before his passing that this will continue, this practice of God, prophet, Jewish people will continue, and that's how communication is going to flow. And the Lord said to me, Moses recalls, the Lord said to me, they have done well in what they have spoken. I will set up a prophet for them from among their brothers like you, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. So just to be clear, this is one of the foundational ideas of Judaism. Maimonides counts this as one of his 13 principles of Jewish faith, that we have to believe that God, that prophets, that there is such a thing called prophecy, that prophets legitimate prophets are real and we have to follow the words of the prophets now how do we know when the prophet is saying something kosher or not if they're legit or not 
Well, the Torah already discussed it, that we had that a few weeks ago. If the prophet tells you to do something against the Torah, then you know, not a kosher prophet. Kosher prophet is only going to, in essence, inspire and um, kind of re-establish what Torah says. So like the prophets of old would say to the people, guys, you know, it's, we're slipping down the path of idolatry. You have to be with Hashem. You have to be faithful to Hashem, etc. The prophets wouldn't add anything new. If a prophet added something new or took away something of the tradition, you knew right away, not a legitimate prophet. So the prophets were not inventing new Jewish things. They were simply, or maybe not simply, maybe that's the wrong word, but they were, they were, their job was to bolster and to strengthen Yiddishkeit, Judaism, um, communicating from Hashem various messages about the importance of keeping Torah and mitzvot. All right, back to the verse, back to the text inside verse 19, and it will be that whoever does not hearken to my words that he speaks in my name, I will exact it of him. In other words, um, someone who doesn't listen to my words, uh, the, 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 the words, my, God's words through the, through the mouth of the prophet that is problematic. The Torah says, I will exact it of him, meaning I will demand some sort of uh, you know, accountability of the person who doesn't listen to the prophets. Let's continue verse 20. But the prophet who intentionally speaks a word of my name, sp- sorry, but the prophet who intentionally speaks a word in my name, which I did not command him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So if someone is a false prophet, someone says, oh, God told me such and such, and, that was, and that's not true, that is a capital crime. Or if somebody says, oh, some other God told me such and such, again, capital crime. Now, this doesn't mean that other faiths, other religions can't have their own belief systems. Sure, this is referring to Judaism. Within Judaism, there's one God, one message, and a prophet that delivers that message is kosher, delivers another message, not kosher. Now, if you say to yourself, how will, I, how will we know the word that the Lord did not speak? In other words, how are you going to know if God didn't, how do you know if it's legit or not? So verse 22, if the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not occur and does not come about, that is the thing the Lord did not speak. So if the prophet says such and such is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then you know that's not a real prophet. It's not real prophecy. The prophet has spoken it wantonly. You shall not be afraid of him. Don't listen to the prophet. Um, Basically cancel the prophet. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 19 Here we go. Let's continue inside. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you inherit them and dwell in the cities and in their houses. Again, Moses is speaking to the generation that is about to go into the land. And he says, so when God takes you into the land and God kicks out the nations and you inherit them and dwell in their cities and their houses. Here we go. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord is giving you to possess. What are these three cities for? Well, we know already because we've discussed it several times. It's the cities of refuge. Three cities, prepare the road for yourself. By the way, prepare the road means that on the road to the cities of refuge, there were signs that said, Miklat, Miklat, refuge, refuge, with big arrows. You know, like on the highway or on the roads, you have signs for exits and street signs and whatever. And if there's a hospital, right, you have the H with an arrow or whatever. You have like signage for important landmarks. So when it came to the city of refuge, there had to be signs on the roads. Prepare the roads means two things. They have to be wide roads so that there's no bottleneck traffic getting there. And they have to be well 
signed. I don't know if that's the right, right phrase. It has to be well, um, it has to be good, good signage so that no one should not know how to get there. So that everyone, let me say that in a, in a direct way, so that everybody can immediately get where they need to go in the city of refuge and know where it is. So prepare the road for yourself and divide into three parts the boundary of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and it will be for every killer to flee there. So every killer, of course, doesn't mean somebody who killed intentionally. It means somebody who killed unintentionally. An accident, whatever, but took a life. And now the concern is that the, that the, that the relatives of the deceased are going to come and try to exact retribution from the one who killed the, their, their loved one. So there needs to be a place, a, a safe haven, a safe house, a safe city, or multiple safe cities to get to as soon as possible. And they have to be around the country so that wherever you were, there was access to one of these cities of refuge. And this is the case. Now here the Torah defines who is the type of person that goes there. And this is the case of the killer who flees there so that he may live. And here's the example. Whoever strikes his fellow to death unintentionally, whom he did not hate in times past, as, for example, when a man goes with his fellow into the forest to chop wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron flies off the handle. That's a, that's a terrible accident. And it reaches his fellow and he dies. So if that's the case, he, that's the wood chopper, whose handle and axe blade separated, tragically, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. So again, simple scenario. I mean, tragic scenario, but a straightforward case. You don't find often that the Torah gives you an example of, of the law, but here the Torah gives you a specific example. The Torah says, someone's chopping wood, they swing the axe, the blade flies off, tragically strikes someone else, they die. We need a city of refuge that this person is not, um, is, that there's no revenge taken on this person by those that, who, are, who are in pain and, and in deep mourning. Lest the avenger, as the Torah says, lest the avenger of the blood pursue the killer while his heart is hot. You see that? While his heart is hot, while his anger, his, 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 uh, his bereavement, his grief is so strong, he may do something not so, not so nice, not so good. So we have to have a place for this person to run to be, to be safe. Yeah. So, yeah, right. How long, does, how long do they stay there? Till the high priest passes away. And even though it sounds like an arbitrary time, we've discussed it before, why exactly the high priest, the high priest brings atonement, and what, there's like various elements. There's still also a measure of atonement here, because even if it's an accident, the fact that an accident happened through this person means that somehow they were deemed worthy of being the conduit of such of a loss of life through them. Does that make sense? So there's still some sort of spiritual cleansing that they need, and that culminates with the passing of the high priest. It says the passing of a, of a righteous person is like um, acts as a cleansing for the people, whatever. So without getting into the details, that's a, a little bit of a longer topic, but it's a good question. But the answer is, as we said in, I think, the book of Numbers, um, until the high priest passes away. So again, you go to the, the, this person goes to the city of refuge, lest the avenger of the blood pursue the killer while his heart is hot and overtake him because the way is long, right? If the way is too long, then the guy's going to catch up to him. And he strikes him to death, whereas he was not deserving of death, right? This guy was not deserving of death, for he had not hated him in times past. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pronouns, but basically the one who ended up killing the other guy did not intend to kill him. He does not deserve the death penalty. He deserves to live. But the concern is that the relatives are going to find him, track him down, and kill him. Vigilante justice. And we want to get him quickly into the safe space. So don't, so make sure the cities are close Therefore, 
I am commanding you saying you shall separate for yourself three cities. Make sure there's enough cities that you can always have some sort of access to the refuge. And when the Lord your God expands your boundary, as he swore to your forefathers, and he gives you all the land of which he spoke to give to your forefathers, if you will keep all this commandment to perform it, which I command you to this, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways all the days, you shall add three more cities for yourself. So in other words, if the land becomes bigger, and now you have more space, more area, so you need to add more cities of refuge, right? Makes sense. If you, if you have to have, if this has to be accessible, then you have to add more cities of refuge to add more access as the city, as the, as the land expands. Add three more cities in addition to these original three. Why? So that, once again, innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance, which would deem you guilty of having shed this blood. As a community, if we don't have a safe place for people to find shelter and, and a safe haven, then it's like we are guilty of having shed this blood. We are collectively guilty for not doing what we need to do to protect those that are innocent. So, um, what we see here is a number of powerful lessons before we get into the next verse, the next few verses. Powerful lessons here about really life and community and responsibility. And I want to share a few of these lessons with you right now. So lesson number one is that we are all responsible for each other. So, and what I mean by that is, look, if we are really a community, then we have to make sure that no one is left vulnerable. So we're talking about here somebody that ended up taking a life by accident, and now they're vulnerable because there might be some act of retribution to get them. We as a community have to step up and make sure that that person is safe. And this becomes an overarching obligation on a community to make sure that every member of the community, even someone who may have been involved in something not so great, but everyone needs to be safe. Everyone needs to have the resources they need to be safe, to be protected, and to be able to rehabilitate. So if we want to extract this overarching idea, if we want to extract it from the immediate context of the city of refuge and apply it broadly, this means social programs and safety nets, etc. without getting into, it's not a political statement or political conversation, but as a community, we have to be there to take care of each other. So that is point number one. Point number two is maybe a more allegorical point, metaphorical point, um, midrashic point, and that is that we all have things that we need to get away from, right? We all have situations that we, we were involved in that were not so great or whatever it is, or behaviors or tendencies or temptations. And we need a safe place to flee to. According to mystical tradition, this is the month that we're in right now, the month of El. El is within the calendar year. It's a month that acts as a haven, as a place of refuge for us to connect spiritually and stay away from spiritual danger. So throughout the year, we're involved in this, that, or the other, and it could get complicated, it can get confusing, it can get uh, tumultuous, right? Life is complicated, life brings with it so many challenges, spiritual challenges, as, and, and, and otherwise, the month of El is a time to kind of shelter ourselves and focus on prayer, focus on Torah study, focus on improving our ways when it comes to mitzvah, adding another mitzvah, kind of refining things, doing things a little bit better, and getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, getting ready for the new year. So in short, the point here is, with this second deeper exposition on this, is that the month that we're in now is our city of refuge to find a safe, a, a safe place from the tumultuous, the tumultuousness. Tumultuous. Tumultuousness. 
Yes. Or something like that. Of life. The turmoil. There you go. The uh, turbulence. Even better. Right? The turbulence of life. This is a way to, uh, to find some, some uh, safe haven. All right. Now, let's. Yes. Isn't one of the mitzvahs for us, like Bain Adon that we're here to look after each other? Yeah. It's a very important one also. Yeah. Call you saw our ravens, Eliza. We're all responsible for each other. We can't say it's not my problem. It becomes a community problem. Look, look what the Torah says. Right? You have to have these cities of refuge and you have to expand it when needed, right? So that innocent blood is not shed, which would deem you guilty of having shed this blood. If we don't have the social, if we don't have this built out in our communities, then, it's, then we're guilty. There might be a perpetrator, but we're guilty for not doing more to ensure this doesn't happen or this couldn't happen. Let's continue verse 11. But if a man hates his fellow, lies in wait for him, rises up against him, and strikes him mortally, and he flees to one of these cities. Right? So what happens? Somebody committed you know, premeditated murder, and he goes to the city of refuge. So the elders of the city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of the blood, that he may die. Now this sounds like you know, street justice. I think the point here is, as the commentaries explain, that basically they're not given a shelter in the city of refuge, they have to face the consequences, and hopefully in a court of law, hopefully in the bet din. But be that as it may, they're not going to find shelter in the city of refuge. That's only for somebody that killed unintentionally. And you shall not pity him, but you shall abolish the shedding of the blood of the innocent from Israel, and it will be good for you. It's not good to have murderers roaming around. Okay, let's continue. We have, okay, decent-sized reading. We're going to go through this at a bit of a quick clip. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14. You shall not pull back your neighbor's landmark. That means move the borders of your property, which the early ones have set as borders in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. So basically, if there's tribal, let's say, tribal territory divisions, don't, like, in the middle of the night, move the fence. No moving the property line to get more land. That's not cool. That's not kosher. This means also, on a spiritual level, there, there are lines. Right? The Judaism says, here's a line, don't cross it. Our job, don't move the line. Don't be like, well, you know, maybe a little bit. Maybe I'll just a little, just try it once. Try it twice. Try a little bit of it. No, nope. don't move the lines. I'm giving you the simple meaning as well as spiritual meaning. Next, verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against any person for any iniquity or for any sin regarding any sin that he will sin. We discussed this before. Torah, the courts do not punish or do not find criminally guilty um, based on the testimony of one witness. There has to be at least two witnesses, as the Torah continues to say. By the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall the matter be confirmed. So basically, you need at least two because without two, you can't cross-reference the stories, right? Two allows you to find out, okay, do the stories match up? If you have one story, then there's no way to corroborate that and know if it's actually true. If, now, take a look, if a false witness rises up against a man to bear perverted testimony against him, then the two men between whom the controversy exists shall stand before the Lord, before the Kohanim and the judges who will be in those days, and the judges shall inquire thoroughly. And behold, the witness is a false witness. He has testified falsely against his brother. So what's the punishment? I mentioned this a few days ago. What's the punishment for false testimony? Verse 19, then you shall do to him as he plotted to do to his brother. And as whatever would have been the outcome of that testimony, let's say it's a capital case, 
and two witnesses are testifying that this person committed murder. Well, if, they make, if they're making up the story, then their punishment is whatever they wanted to do to the other guy. If it's a capital crime, then it's, up, then, then it's a capital crime. This testimony is also a capital crime. If it's a monetary thing, then it's a monetary thing. But basically, it's called Adam Zoman. You do to the witnesses, or at least they're liable, theoretically, what they wanted to do to the other guy that they were testi- testifying against falsely. And you shall thus abolish evil from among you. This is meant to be a punishment as well as a, um, as well as a deterrent for false witnesses. And those who remain shall listen in fear. Right? This is called deterrence. Those who remain shall listen in fear. <laughs> the ones who weren't killed. Anyone who wasn't the false witness should pay attention and learn not to do this. And they shall no longer continue to commit any such evil thing among you. So here is how the Torah describes the notion of uh, of, of, of punishment as a deterrent. Let's continue. You shall, have not, you shall not have pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This does not mean necessarily that you knock out the somebody wanted someone else injured or somebody injured someone else that you do to them exactly what they did. This is a monetary conversation as we discussed in prior Torah portions. Nonetheless, you do commensurate to what the damage that they wanted to cause through their testimony that is done to them Financially, or if it's capital, then, then, uh, then, then there is a, a, a stronger punishment. Okay, let's continue. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Here we go. When you go out to war against your enemies. Can I just ask a quick question? Yeah, for sure. Is there, I, I know you can't go into it now, but is there any kind of argument or discussion in Talmud? I'm sure there must be about the eye for the eye, eye for eye, to the Yeah, for sure. How they have proven that this, you know, how they have proven through analysis of tax. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there are other verses that indicate that it's a financial thing. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's clear that this is the way that Jewish courts always worked. It was always somebody injures someone, someone, you know, God forbid, breaks someone's arm, you don't break their arm, right? You, they pay for the medical bills. So this is, yes, the short answer is yes. It's in the Talmud, tractate. Bava Kama, I want to say. Try to Bava Kama talks about torch, torts and damages. And that's where all of this is well explored. Yeah. If you study Talmud, and I know you've studied a little bit of, you know, uh, 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 sections of Talmud, you know the Talmud does not leave any stone unturned. So this is very well, yeah, it's, it's very, yeah, oh, for sure. It's very well established. One place to look, by the way, if you want, just to look it up, um, you can go to safaria.com org or .com, whatever, Safaria, and then you just put in chapter 19, verse 21 uh, of Deuteronomy, and then they might have references, you know, they, they, you could probably find which section of Talmud, kind of tracing it back from the verse, they have some good linking um, links, linking links. All right, yeah, so Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse number one, when you go out to war against your enemies, and you see horse and chariot of people more numerous than you, Horse and chariot implies like professional equipment, right? So you shall not be afraid of them. It's like, oh no, all we brought were our Maccabee shields and, uh, and a toilet paper roll. Okay, don't worry about it. Like, don't be, I'm kidding. I'm not despair. I'm just saying like, you see the enemy, don't be disheartened by the strength and the numbers of the other side. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. Oh, and who's the Lord your God? Um, uh, who brought you up 
out of the land of Egypt. So it's the same God who took you out of Egypt, so God is fighting these battles, you're good. And it will be when you approach the battle that the Kohen shall come near and speak to the people. So listen to this. The Kohen would gather the, the soldiers and speak to them. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are approaching the battle against your enemies. Let your hearts not be faint. You shall not be afraid, you shall not be alarmed, and you shall not be terrified because of them. Four different languages. Heart not faint, don't be afraid, don't be alarmed, don't be terrified. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. This is kind of like the pep talk before the battle. The Kohen, there was a special Kohen, special Kohen, special priest, not the high priest, but a Kohen that was designated for and anointed for war to, to do this kind of prep for war. He would Say, you guys, you have this, you got this, God is with you, don't be afraid, etc. Why don't be afraid? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight against your enemies to save you. And then the officers, the generals, the military officials shall speak to the people saying they would start um, getting rid of soldiers that didn't want to be there. They would say, what man is there who has built a new house and has not yet inaugurated it? So if you built a new house and you haven't yet moved in, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in war, and another man inaugurated. In other words, the idea is that if somebody just built a house, they're going to be afraid that they're not going to go back, they're not going to make it back home. So if you have this fear, better not be on the front lines if you have this fear in battle. We don't want anyone fighting that doesn't want to be there or that is terrified, that does not make for a good soldier. You want confidence and you want faith and you want trust. You don't want fear and, uh, and, and nerves. Um, and, and the Kohen continue, or the, the officers continue, and what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not yet redeemed it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in war and another man redeem it. And what man is there who has betrothed a woman and has not yet taken her? In other words, they're engaged or they got betrothed, but they didn't consummate the marriage, whatever it is. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the war and another man take her. So basically there was an out given. Three different scenarios. You built a house, planted a vineyard, betrothed the woman, and didn't yet, you know, finish the job, so to speak, you know, move into the house, um, uh, redeem the vineyard, or I guess enjoy from the vineyard, or, you know, uh, finish the marriage, then in either of these cases, basically they said, go home, you don't need to serve, in this, you don't need to fight in this war, go home. And the idea is that they have their heart is not going to be in it because they are elsewhere. They're, they're still in the house, in the vineyard, or with uh, their, their, their beloved. Verse number 8. And the officer shall continue to speak to the people and say, one more category of people that can go home. Right? This is how we eliminate potential soldiers. What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, that he should not cause the heart of his brothers to melt as his heart. In other words, if you're afraid... Go home, because then you're going to just make other people afraid. If you, if you stay there, other people are going to be... And that's not good for anybody. That's not good for morale. But more than morale, it's not good for confidence. And it shall be that when the officials sp finish speaking to the people, they shall appoint officers of the legions at the edges of the people. I want to share this. There's a commentary that says in the Talmud that why, did, why was there all these categories? He built a house, planted a vineyard, betrothed a woman. And then it says, and if you're afraid, you can go home. This is to give people who are afraid an out. Because they would give all the categories, and then no one would know why you went home. Are you with me on this? If a soldier left, if they gathered everybody into the conference center, right, and they made an announcement, okay, anybody that fits into these four categories, you can go home. Built a house, planted a vineyard, betrothed a woman, or are afraid. And you have 100 people that walk out. No one knows that, that those 100 people are afraid. So this was to allow the person who was afraid to save face and to actually leave 
which is better for everybody. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, it might be that they might be nervous, they might be afraid that they're afraid, and be afraid to leave, and then just, that's not good. Again, that's just not good for anybody that's in this battle. But Rabbi, what, isn't it, I don't, I'm, I'm First of all, hey, Donna. Hi. Hey, good just to see you. Back. I just got back. Nice. Um, you know, it would seem to be a quality to step up for your people no matter what. So I don't understand how yeah. being afraid is. No, you're right. You're right. Ideally, there's ideals and then there's practice. And then, and then there's, uh, you know, practical life. So I think the point here is, yes, ideally you fight and you believe and God's got you and you have nothing to worry about and you're going to come home. And that, yes, 100%. But at the end of the day, if somebody, is, if somebody can't get over that fear, and it's not a judgment, if somebody's afraid, then it's just better for everybody that they, they go home. Let them go home. In other words, it's not, it's not like, oh, fine, go home. No one's angry. It's, like, it's literally like better to go home than to engage, in, than to be on the front lines and be petrified. It's not a good thing, right, on, on, on any level. At least that's the Jewish perspective on this. The, the, the belief was that there would be plenty of of soldiers, plenty of, uh, of, of other soldiers that would not be, you know, jumping ship, so to speak. Okay, so it's basically, okay, it's, ba it's not a draft, it's kind of like mandatory service with exceptions, essentially. Okay, this is chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, seventh reading, this is for tomorrow, Shoftim, verse number, nine, uh, verse number 10. When you approach a city to wage war against it, you shall propose peace to it. That's nice. Okay, always first, stop, first step is proposing peace. And it will be if it responds to you with peace and it opens up for you, opens up to you, then it will be that all the people found therein shall become tributary to you, they shall serve you. Okay, well, I guess that ends good for, uh, for the Jewish people. But okay, so you propose peace and then can sort of live, live in peace. But if it does not make peace with you and it wages war against you, you shall besiege it. And the Lord your God will deliver it into your hands and you shall strike all its males with the edge of the sword. However, the women, the children, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoils, you shall take for yourself, and you shall eat the spoils of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. However, of these people's cities, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall not allow any soul to live. Rather, you shall utterly destroy them. Now, this doesn't mean that peace overtures were not done. Even to these seven nations of Israel, of, Ca of the land of Canaan, before it became Israel, there was also the idea of a peace overture, which is well documented in the book of Yeshua, the book of, Judge, uh, book of Joshua, um, and in Jewish law. But it's just saying that if they come out to war, then you go all the way. Rather, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Prezites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites, one, two, three, four, five, six. We're missing one. Okay, six out of seven, at least they ain't bad, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So that they should not teach you according, uh, to act according to all their abominations they have done for their gods, whereby you would sin against the Lord your God. Basically, if you leave them around and create peace, then it's going to destroy you with their idolatrous practices. When you besiege, now here we get to a beautiful verse that I think many are familiar with, the verse that connects human beings and trees. This is a Tubishvat special. When you besiege a city for many days to wage war against it, to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. So if they're fruit-bearing trees, don't cut them down for wood for the siege. 
For you may eat from them, they're fruit-bearing trees, but you shall not cut them down. Is the tree of the field a man to go into the siege before you? So you're sieging, you know, the people inside, but you're not allowed to destroy the fruit-bearing trees. So that is one of the major mitzvot that deals with the protection of trees and really the environment. So like, we're not supposed to cut down fruit-bearing trees. Now, non-fruit-bearing trees are also you know, you shouldn't just wantonly cut them down, but if you need them, you can cut them down. But a fruit-bearing tree, you have to be very careful. You're not allowed to cut them down. Only under very, you know, very specific circumstances in Jewish law is, is a fruit-bearing tree allowed to be cut down. In fact, I've shared this before. We had, when we first moved into our house, there was a tree in our backyard or some sort of thing in the backyard that I told the guy who was cutting the lawn, I'm like, hey, can you pull that out? And he's like, oh, it's a fruit-bearing tree. We can't do that. So Anyway, your mileage may vary, but just you should know this is something, a, a, a mitzvah that still applies to this day. We're careful about not cutting down fruit-bearing trees. Okay, my internet connection is unstable. I hope it's... Am I back? Can you guys see me? Are we back? You guys tell me. Frozen or back and better than ever? Yeah? Now you're back. Now I'm back. Okay. The idea here is, I don't know when I got cut off, but bottom line is, even to this day, we avoid cutting down fruit-bearing trees. Now this verse that says, is the tree of a field a man to go into siege before you, that asks it rhetorically, but indeed there's a way to understand this, that it's not asking rhetorical, rhetorically, but it's making a statement. A human being is like a tree in the field. The tree of the field is a man, is a person, and there are many beautiful lessons that are derived from trees to human beings, parallels, just like a tree needs roots, we need roots, a tree needs to, a uh, fruit-bearing tree needs to give fruit to others, right, it needs to share its fruit, we need to share our gifts with others, grow tall, etc., provide shade, all of these, they're wonderful um, uh, lessons that we learn from a tree. A tree needs water and needs sunlight, we need water, we need sunlight also, again, metaphorically, so I don't want to get into all those details, you can, you can certainly, you probably heard it before, you can look it up, there are a lot of lessons from this verse that could either be read rhetorically or as a statement, depending on how you want to read it. However, a tree you know is not a fruit tree, you may destroy and cut down, and you shall build bulwarks against the city that makes war with you until its submission. So you can basically create um, fortresses or battering rams from that wood, from those non-fruit-bearing trees when you're in battle, but not the fruit-bearing trees. So, the, and here's the message that even when it's a war, even when there's a battle, even when there's a war waging, you could think, well, all rules are lifted because we got to win this war, there's still a line that we're not supposed to cross. There's still a line of sensitivity that we ought not cross. The final mitzvah of this week's Torah portion is a powerful one that once again speaks about communal responsibility and how we have to really care about every single person and not let anyone fall through the cracks. It's not moral for a society to be okay with, well, that's only one person or that's only a small percentage of the population, whatever that means, right? It's not kosher. It's not okay. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 21. If a slain person be found in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess lying in the field and it is not known who slew him. So you find a, a dead body. You find a person dead in middle of nowhere. Then your elders and your judges shall go forth and they shall measure to the cities around the corpse. And it will be that from the city closer to the corpse, the closest city, the elders of that city shall take a calf with which work has never been done and that has never drawn a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the calf down to a rugged valley, which was neither tilled nor sown, and there in the valley they shall decapitate the calf. 
And the Kohanim, it's like an offering almost, you'll see soon. And the Kohanim, the sons of Levi, shall approach. For the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their mouth shall every controversy and every lesion be judged. And all the, the elders of that city, who are the nearest to the corpse, shall wash their hands over the calf that was decapitated in the valley. And they shall announce and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see this crime. There has to be a statement of absolution from the elders of the city that are closest to that dead body, that we didn't do it, it's not our fault, etc. Atone for your people Israel. Kaper la'am Yisrael. Atone for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and lay not the guilt of innocent blood among your people, and lay not the guilt of innocent blood among your people Israel. And so the blood shall be atoned for them. There's an atonement process and a confession process here because a corpse is found in the field. Verse number 9, And you shall abolish the shedding of innocent blood from among you, for you shall do what is proper in the eyes of the Lord. And here we find that when a person, when one person passes away, when one person is actually killed in the field, and we don't know who did it, we don't know who they are. If you know who they are, then it's a difference. So we don't even know who this person is. Un, you know, anonymous, unidentifiable, we don't know who they are, where they came from, where they're going, nothing. But we know where they were found. You find the closest city. And you have priests that come out and Levites that come out and the elders of the city that come out. And they make a declaration that we're not guilty, we didn't do it, we didn't know. And then we ask, they ask for atonement for the people. It's a whole, a whole process, whole procedure. You know what the message is? It's one of the most powerful messages that we could hear and it, it aligns with what I said before. The message is this. There's no such thing as just one person. There's no such thing as a person who just got lost and didn't make it. That can't be okay. We can't be okay creating a society in which some people end up as statistics. That cannot be the society that we live in. That's not a kosher society. Everyone matters. Everyone counts. And when one person doesn't make it, it's a national tragedy. It becomes a big deal. It's not just anonymous. It's a big, it's front news. It's front, sorry, front page news. It's a big deal. And by absolving themselves of guilt, what they're doing is in some way acknowledging that there's what to absolve. Because at the end of the day, there is some responsibility. The elders of the city, the leaders have some responsibility. Even though they say we didn't do it, what that means is we didn't intentionally do it. But that's why they ask for atonement. Because there is some Subtle, at least, association. Did we provide the resources for every single person in that town or that passed through that town? Because if we did, that person doesn't end up where they are. If, for example, when people travel, if we provided enough shelter and enough food and enough um, uh, safety in escorting people on their way, then maybe this tragedy doesn't happen. Maybe it happened because we weren't paying attention. This is the level, this is the level of responsibility that Torah demands, of, demands from us toward one another. That it's not enough to say, well, I'm living my life, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, oppressing anybody, I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm living, let live, I got my own life, I got my own thing. We have to make sure that we, we create a society and live in a society in which there's no one that becomes a statistic, where that's not okay with us. And if something, God forbid, if tragedy happens, it's our tragedy. It's not just a tragedy. It's our tragedy. Hope that makes sense. All right. That's, uh, that's the level of responsibility that Torah 
assigns to us all. All right, so what's the moral of the story? I think we have a few cases with the city of refuge and this last law, the, the Egla, known as the Egla Arufa. This last law and the city of refuge teach us that we have to pave the roads. We have to provide the resources. We have to make sure that everyone has what they need, a place to go, safety, security, and they know where to go. It's not enough to have places to go. You have to prepare the roads. You have to make sure that they know that there's a place to go. And what, is, what, what am I referring to? I, any, anyone that could become a statistic, what, on whatever level, right? From the more subtle to the more obvious. So like whether it's a kid in school. I'm in a school right now, broadcasting from the Chabad school here in Atlanta. So if it's a, a kid in school that's falling through the cracks, the teachers don't know what to do with the kid and whatever, maybe at some point they're going to send the kid out because we can't deal with the kid. We have to create the resources to the best of our, of our ability and then beyond to make sure that no one falls through the cracks. On a societal level, they're spiritual, right? Spiritual level. No one should fall through the cracks. We see somebody struggling spiritually. Say a good word, encourage them, study Torah with them, etc. If you might say, well, who am I to study Torah with somebody? If you know an Aleph, you can teach an Aleph, right? If you, whatever you know, you can teach. And then, of course, on a, on a practical level, on a physical level, food, clothing, shelter, etc. Helping provide basic needs and more than basic needs for others. And as important, making sure they know where those resources are. All right. I mean, we are all better off when we care for each other. That's the, that's the type of community, type of society that God envisions for us as described in the Torah. So with this inspiration, let's go into Shabbos. And we'll call this a Shabbos of unity. A Shabbos which we think about our collective responsibilities toward each other and how we need to, to keep an eye out for the needs of others. All right. Thank you very much for joining. Any questions, comments before we close it out? No, thank you so much, Rabbi. Alright, pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure. Yes, I will I will give her uh, give her good regards um, for her birthday. Okay, everybody. We'll see you all. Um, we're back next week. DPP Monday. If you can make it in person, let me know. We'd love to have you. Um, and, and as always, we're on Zoom. All right, Joy, Karen, Sandrine, Sarah, Ray, Donna. We'll see you guys. Have a good Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. Bye, Bye everybody.